as we said in our call to worship, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to declare his steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. It's good to declare that. Who are we declaring that to? We're declaring that to God, acknowledging that's who he is. We're declaring that to ourselves, reminding us the reality of who he is and the benefits we have from him. And we declare that to one another because we are meant to proclaim that to the world. And so now in our service, we're going to pause for a time to declare those things, to tell God how we're thankful, to tell him and to one another about his steadfast love in our hearts and our lives and his faithfulness to us. So let's go before him and uh, declare who he is. Father, we thank you that you are a God whose steadfast love is always there in the morning and that your faithfulness carries us all the way through the night. There is so much to be thankful for, and yet I know my heart tends to speak more about uh, what I'm upset about, what I'm disappointed in, what I'm stressed out about. Uh, I am quicker to complain than I am to compliment and declare your goodness. So Lord, I thank you for this time we have to proclaim the reality of who you are. So now we lift those up to you. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness towards us. It is hard to believe that the gospel is completely true, not because it promises so little, but because it promises so much. And so I pray this morning that you would give our hearts faith to believe. I pray that your spirit would work and move to experience the reality of who you are as our good heavenly father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're going to give me crying before I start. <laughs> it's a dangerous place to start. I love it. Um, Christians have a distinct relationship with an understanding of time. Have you ever thought about that? We have a distinct relationship with an understanding of time. We believe 
and eternity. We believe that this life is not all there is. Not only that, but that actually that in light of eternity, we believe the Bible says, in light of that, that life here on earth is short. It's a blip on the radar of eternity. We don't believe in some general idea that this is not all there is, but we have a specific belief that you will either spend eternity with God's favored presence, where there's no more hurt, no more pain, no more tears or sin, or you will spend eternity separated from God's favored presence, where there's no more good, no more love or joy or peace. It is this belief about the future and eternity that is meant to completely shape how we live, how we function in our lives now here on earth. It is meant to help us prioritize our lives with what's truly important, to clarify to us in light of eternity what is truly important in the here and now. Another way to say this is to say that our unique relationship and understanding of time is meant to direct and prioritize what it is that we love, what it is we love. It's meant to help us order our lives in such a way that really what we are to order is what we love here and now. What are we going to devote ourselves to on this earth? That's to say what, your love, what you love will determine how you spend your time. What you truly love, what your affections are truly after, will determine how you spend your time here on earth. It will determine your approach to relationships, to work, money, status, sex, rest, beauty, food, and everything else. This is supposed to be so much a part of a Christian's daily uh, thinking, seeing the world, and ordering our loves and our life that Paul says, basically, that if... Christ didn't raise from the dead. If death is all there is, that there's no eternity with God, then Christians should be pitied the most because we have based our entire life around the truth that this is not all there is. Meaning that because we believe that Jesus has secured the Father's love for us through his life, death, and resurrection, that our entire life is based around and informed by that truth. His love for us and our responsive love for him is meant to order and determine our entire life. It is not one of the many things in our life. Love for our Heavenly Father is the point of life. It is our compass for our journey and experience of life on this side of heaven. John, in our text this morning, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, exhorts us to that reality, exhorts us to actually build our lives around that truth and that reality. He does so by exhorting us to not love the world. But John does not start with the exhortation to not love the world, but leads up to it with a section reminding us what benefits are ours here and now and forever in Christ and through our belief in the gospel. So John has a section to remind us what's true for us now, what's true for us for all eternity. And then after that, he exhorts us to not love the world. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. First John chapter 2, 
verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, but we thank you what you promised to do through it. That you promised to transform and change us. And so we pray that your spirit would move and powerfully work in our lives this morning through your message and your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the first thing we need to clear up, I'm not going to spend any really the amount of time that uh, I could in this, but just acknowledge the kind of strange, weird uh, names he gives. He goes, children, father, young men. If you want to talk more about that after the service, come talk to me. I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, it's not really a big part, but there's a reason. There's debates on that. It's not for the sermon, okay? So I just want to acknowledge that up front. If you want to know more of why he does that, he's just addressing all Christians. That's all it is, all right? So that part is over. I had a page and a half on that in my notes, and I, was, I needed to shorten it, so we're cutting that out. <laughs> if you want to hear that page and a half, come talk to me afterwards. <laughs> um, but now that that's out of the way, what I want us to notice is what's more important is the content in those verses, verses 12 through 14. Basically, what John does here is he reminds his readers, he reminds Christians what is true for them because they are in Christ? To sum it up, he reminds them that their sins are, forgi are forgiven in Christ. He reminds them that they know the Father. They know him who is from the beginning, meaning Jesus. And because the word of God abides in us, in Christians, he reminds us and he reminds them that they are strong. And they have overcome the evil one because the word of God abides in them. These are the blessings that all followers of Jesus have. And the two main fundamental blessings named here are addressed to the children, to all believers. Saying your sins are forgiven and you relationally, intimately, and personally know the Father. Not a knowledge about him. But you know him personally. You have a personal, intimate knowledge, relationship with the Father. These are the most important and fundamental benefits that come with being a Christian. We will revisit this section later. But for now, this is what John gives us to prepare and ready our hearts for the exhortation that he's going to give us in the next section. The exhortation to not love the world. There is something within these benefits listed here in verses 12 through 14 that is meant to help and prepare us for what he's calling us to do in verses 15 through 17. But before we look at what that is, 
We have to get on the same page and understand what he means when he says, do not love the world. Because there are many scholars, there are many pastors and Christians who have misunderstood and therefore misapplied what John is speaking about when he says and calls us to not love the world. I mean, we were just coming off of a section last week where we are basically told that the world will know us through our love that we have for one another. One of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, in John's Gospel, chapter 3, he tells us that God so loved the world. Aren't we supposed to love what God loves and hate what he hates? If John 3.16 says God loves the world, then why here in verse 15 are we told to hate it? But it's not just that. It goes on to say that if we love the world, then the love of the Father, the love of God is not in us. So what are we to make of this word, world, in our context? Well, it's not talking about people in the world, because that would contradict other commandments. It's not referring to uh, the nature of beings that are in the world, because God created everything in this world, and he calls it good. Jesus takes on flesh and comes to redeem the world and everything in it. The word world here is referring to a system of thinking where you believe and live as if the material world is all there is. It's referring to a system and a value where you live as if what you long for and what you want most can be found on this side of heaven in the world. So world means worldly attitudes or values that are opposed to God and his word. Or to put it another way, to say that you are not to love anything in the world more than you love God. If God is your first and primary love, then all your other loves will fall rightly in their place. But John is telling us that if you love anything other than God first or primary in your life, then you do not have the love of the Father. Therefore, that is the first and primary reason for us to not love the world. Because to love the world means we lose or don't have the love of the Father. Because you cannot love the world and love the Father. It's one or the other. You cannot have two loves in your life. You cannot have two things in your life that you are completely devoted to. There's only one thing that you can be completely devoted to. And John is telling us you can only have one thing or one person whom you are devoted to. Either it's going to be the Father or it's going to be the world and the things in the world. There's no middle ground. Either you love God and therefore reject and hate the values of the world or you love the world and you hate and reject the values of God and the Bible. In verse 16, we get some specifics. We get three elements that are of the world, and all of them are antithetical to God. We get the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride in our possessions. Now, all of these are found in the first sin in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? You remember? First, there's the desire to eat of the tree that was forbidden. For Eve, 
would not have entertained what the serpent was offering unless she really wanted to eat it herself. So you see the desire of the flesh is to have that tree, the fruit from that tree in that moment, no matter what God said in his word. And second, we're told that she actually looks at the apple. And when she looks at it, she determines through her eyes, through what she can see, that it's good for eating. So now she's looking at it longingly and trusting the desire of her eyes, which tell her that it's good. No matter what the word of God says, because it seemed right to her eyes. And then third, she was driven by the pride she had to possess the knowledge of good and evil so that she could become like God. And she sought to possess, because of her pride, something that was already hers. God created her in the image of himself, the image of God, and yet she's seeking to obtain it through her own, on her own terms. In her own way, in her own determination, no matter what his word or instructions are. So here's the thing. Her desire for food in the moment was not bad. Her desire for food in that moment was good. But it was the lust of the flesh in the moment that drove her to not care where the food came from or what God said about it. It was right. Her assessment of her eyes were both right and wrong. Right? It was right in that the apple wasn't rotten. It was good. It was right. It was good to be able to eat. But it was wrong because she trusted the desire of her eyes for that apple over the word of God. And then lastly, her desire to want to be like God was how she was made. But her belief that she could obtain it through her own doing was what was completely wrong. You see, the world and things in it are not bad in and of themselves. Right? We already established that God created it and it's all good. But when you take something good and you make it God-like, then it becomes bad. It becomes a sin. When we take something good in creation that he has given us and we discount his word and we discount his instructions, then it becomes bad. When you take good things to try to find in them what only God can give then that is when the good things in creation become bad. The good things in the world are all meant to be pointers to our good God who created them and gave them to us for our enjoyment. But they are never an end in and of themselves. The lie we buy into over and over and over again is the same lie that happened in this first sin. That you can gain lasting life purpose, joy, peace, and fulfillment apart from God on your own terms, in your own way. But what verse 17 tells us is that that's impossible because the world is passing away. Only those who are children of God, love Him, and abide in Him will find life, purpose, joy, and peace, and fulfillment that lasts forever. So you can't find it in the world because it's going to fade. It won't last. It's passing away. It can't provide for you what you long and look for to provide. Anything else you seek to love apart from God will fade away just like the darkness and produce devastation, destruction, and ultimately death. David Foster Wallace was a prolific writer and an atheist. 
And he describes the emptiness of what this world offers in such a clear way that I have to quote him at length. It's a longer quote, but I think it's worthwhile. He writes, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. And he's an atheist. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Four Noble Truths or some infringible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before, you finally, before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. He goes on, worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidi- he goes on, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they, that they are unconscious. They are our default settings. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel and f- of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self, end quote. Do you see what this atheist was saying? More insightfully than I've heard any Christian describe, that if you love and worship anything in the world, it will end up eating you alive. If you love anything other than God first, it will eat you alive. Tragically, he knew this too well because he ended up taking his life. Um, there's one area that he missed, though. He was off the mark on. He put all religions in the same boat. But we know from the previous section, verses 12 through 14, that Christianity offers something different. Christianity is distinct from other religions. Christianity and the God of the Bible are different than both the world and all other religions. You see, the world says security comes from how much money and financial success you have. Religion says there's no real, secure, no real security, therefore you better obey and keep all the rituals and the rules or else. But Christianity and the Bible says security is found in knowing God and knowing him and who he is in a personal, intimate way because he is the creator and the giver of all good things. Therefore, when you are his child, you are secure. The world says affirmation, confidence, and esteem come from within. That you must accept, embrace, and even celebrate all of who you are. Even the areas that you don't like. 
or even the areas that you feel bad or unhealthy in your life. Religion says that affirmation, confidence, and esteem come from how well you're doing compared to other people. How well you compare and compete with other people and keeping the rules. As long as you're doing better than those around you, then you can have some form of confidence or esteem until someone comes along that's doing better than you. The Bible and God says that true affirmation, confidence, and esteem is not found in what you think of yourself. It's not found in how you compare to how others are doing and keeping the rules, but it's found in what God says about you. He says, I know you better than you know yourself. I know your strengths because I gave them to you. I know your sins, the ones you hide and are most afraid of being found out. I know even the sins that you don't know about, that you're blind to. I know you to your core. And he says, I love you so much that I sent my son to take your place. You are my beloved, my child, my bride. You are someone who I've given everything up in order to get you. That's where affirmation, confidence, and esteem comes from. The world says peace and fulfillment come through your success, through your efforts, through your ability to somehow obtain whatever you consider to be the good life. But religion says peace and fulfillment come through doing everything that's required of you and doing it perfectly and progressively better. But the Bible and God says peace and fulfillment come not through what you do, but by trusting the success and perfect life of another, what he has done for you. It comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven. It comes from knowing the Father and his heart for you. For you. Nothing can undo what Christ did for you in his perfect life and his victorious death. Therefore, you have peace and fulfillment in him now and for all eternity. Don't you see the best things this world can offer are only temporary. Whatever it offers, the best things it offers, it may be wonderful, but it's temporary and it's passing away. And the problem with that is that you have forever in your heart. You are, <clears throat> you are made with forever in your heart. You have a heart that's made for and craves eternity. Therefore, you will never be satisfied by what this world can offer, even the best of it. When you go through a mid or quarter life crisis, it's because you're trying to find in this world what only God can give you. When, you, when YOLO is your motto for your life, it's because you're trying to find in the world what only God can give you. Those desires in your heart are rumblings of eternity in your being. And they're meant to point you to the eternal one. They're meant to point you to your father. When you find yourself tempted by the desires of the flesh, by the desires of your eyes and the pride of your possessions, it means you have exchanged love for the father for love of the world. And the only way to fight against love of the world is to know the love and blessings that you have in the Father. As is expressed for us and laid out in the section, in the verses 12 through 14, preparing us for the section to not love the world. 
But don't miss why we have all those blessings. Don't miss why we can be confident that those are true for us and they are ours now and for all eternity. It's not because of your record of loving the Father versus loving the world. It's due to being given the record of the one who's from the beginning, Jesus. Do you remember when he was tempted, when he was in the world? Remember when he was led out to the wilderness, to the desert, and that he was tempted? Remember the, and the way that he was tempted, right? He went through three temptations, and there are three elements in our passage about the world. First, he had fasted for 40 days, so he was hungry. And so the evil one tempted him, saying, turn these stones into bread. Why are you, why are you living with this longing and craving for hunger? Turn these stones into bread. He's being tempted, the desire of the flesh in the moment. Who cares what the word of God says? Just deliver it for yourself. Aren't you hungry? It's been 40 days. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't give in. And then the second temptation, the evil one shows him all the kingdoms of the world right before him in a moment, and he offers them to him if he just bows the knee to the evil one. What is that? The desire of the eyes. He could, he could have just said, I'll give you the world, but he shows it to him. He shows it to him so he can see it. He's tempting him with the desires of the eyes. If he just bows the knee, but he doesn't give in. And then the last one, the evil one takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, and says, if you really are the son of God, if that's really who you are, throw yourself down. Because according to the Bible, you can't get hurt. God will not allow you to get hurt in this way. And he's offering what? Pride in his possession of who he is. If you're really the son of God, do that. Throw yourself down. But he doesn't give in. Jesus perfectly loved the father in the midst of being offered Everything the world had to offer. And yet, and yet, despite his perfect obedience and love for the Father, he loses that love on the cross. Despite loving the Father perfectly and denying everything that the world has to offer, he loses that love on the cross, enduring all the darkness and the punishment that love for the world leads to. And he did this for you. And he did this for me. He did this for people who are prone to leave the God we love, as we sing. So now what's true of you is you have forgiveness of all your sins, including your sin, to loving the world. Now you know the Father and his love, and it will never leave you. And when that hits your heart, then love for the world is no longer an issue is what John is teaching us. If we are drawn by the desires of our flesh, desires of our eyes, the pride of our possessions, if we're drawn to the love of the world, it's because we've left, forgotten, and need the love of the Father. That's the only thing that drives the love of the world out of our hearts. So when you find yourself drawn to the desires of the flesh and desires of your eyes, when you find yourself proud in your possessions, you don't need to be told to not love the world. 
You need... You need to remember and return to the love of the Father through Jesus and all the benefits that come from him to those who do exchange love for the Father for love for the world. He obeyed perfectly. Everything the world had to offer was his. And he turns it down to love his Father and loses that love. So that when we try to seek in the world what only he can give, we will never lose his love. So, be reminded, be comforted, and return to the fact that you, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And you know this father who would give up his son so that he could get you. Amen.